Well, when you see this picture, you probably know what it represents. If you were born before 1980, you probably even know where you were at 11.39 Eastern Time, 8.39 Pacific Time, on January the 28th, 1986. I remember where I was when I first heard of the Challenger disaster. 75 seconds or so after it lifted off from the platform in Cape Canaveral and on TV for millions of viewers to watch and to rewind and rewatch again, the Space Shuttle Challenger disintegrated after the failure of some O-rings, some rubber circular pieces, small tiny pieces that were used in the main engine, the rocket engine that would lift the shuttle into orbit. Seven lives were lost, and in addition to that, one of them was a teacher. That teacher was supposed to go into space as the first teacher then, and then to teach students on earth important lessons about science. But the lesson to be learned from the space shuttle Challenger disaster was very little to do with Uh, science lessons for elementary school, there was a much more important lesson that was to be learned. The disaster resulted in a 32-month hiatus of the space shuttle program, and President Ronald Reagan began a special, or started a special commission to investigate the cause of the accident. That commission found that the accident, the tragedy, could have been avoided. In the time leading up to the liftoff and disaster of the Challenger, there were workers who alerted the NASA managers to potential flaws with these O-rings. There already was knowledge that these O-rings under certain conditions, might deteriorate. It was a cold morning in Cape Canaveral, and so it was found out that those O-rings had deteriorated and and allowed for a disastrous mechanical failure. These managers knew knew of the problem but ignored it and did not think it to be serious enough to put a halt to the shuttle's planned liftoff. It was determined at that point that the chief cause was really human pride. The inability to properly listen to correction, to receive warning, and as a result, seven lives died. Well, what that shuttle disaster illustrates on this very grand scale is a reality that plays itself out day after day after day in many men's lives. The result of refusing correction, the inability to properly receive and appreciate and esteem 
admonition and rebuke. It is built into the flesh to resist any correction and instead take full satisfaction in the assessment that we make of ourselves and to live our lives ignorant of, intentionally ignorant of our own blind spots. It is a major problem and as a result, it takes the lives of people. And it has throughout history, not just these seven lives who are aboard the space shuttle Challenger. And so it's understandable that Solomon, the wisest man to ever live apart from Jesus Christ, would spend a lot of his Proverbs dealing with this issue of correction and the right appreciation of it. And so this evening I want to do a survey of the book of Proverbs. And as we do that survey of the book of Proverbs and what it has to say about correction, I want us to notice eight primary truths related to correction and the importance, the nature, the role of correction as it relates to growing in wisdom. The first of these is the very foundational truth, and it's this. As we look at the book of Proverbs and what it teaches about accepting correction, we must begin with this first truth, and it is, it is as follows. The right attitude to correction begins with the acknowledgement of personal deficiency. It begins with the acknowledgement of personal deficiency. Now, this may sound very straightforward, and we may give lip service to this principle, but let's admit it, on a practical level, it is very difficult to look on ourselves and assess ourselves as deficient. In fact, it's the common, the common perspective, the common opinion that we as men are self-sufficient. We have what it takes. You could look at Frank Sinatra's song, My Way, I did it my way, and to glory in that kind of mentality. That doesn't just exist in the world. Certainly, it defines the world. It defines men in the world, but it defines the flesh, and it defines one of the core battles we as Christian men face in this life. The recognition that in ourselves, by ourselves, even as redeemed men, we are insufficient and deficient. One writer puts it this way, I've often noticed with curiosity that there are more women than men asking for counseling at our church. Why is that? Could it be that women have more problems than men? Actually, I'm convinced that the men in our church have just as many, if not more, problems than women. The trouble is that too many of us aren't comfortable with asking for help. We are determined to look like we have it all together. It is our pride that keeps us from admitting we need help with thorny issues, bearing burdens, and resisting temptations. Now, this writer describes a problem that is not just prevalent in the church that he is at, but is prevalent in every church. 
men who have a hard time asking for counsel, have a hard time receiving admonition, wanting to give this aura that they have it all under control and they don't have any burdens. But the first truth about accepting correction and avoiding disaster is that we must have this very vivid acknowledgement that we are personally deficient. Receptivity to correction springs from this basic attitude of humility wherein one recognizes his own personal deficiency and refuses to trust in himself. Proverbs 12 verse 15 says this, and we've looked at these Proverbs already in other studies, but it is important to bring them back in again to emphasize this point. Proverbs 12 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Here we have one of these antithetical proverbs, this parallelism that contrasts. And in the first half, you have the fool. He is self-sufficient. He does not see any deficiency in himself. Solomon contrasts that with the wise man. And it is the wise man who is the one who listens to counsel. And this idea of listening to counsel is not just some kind of easy counsel about what to do about a favorite restaurant. This counsel has to do with life-changing, life-impacting counsel. The wise man is he who listens to that correction. Proverbs 14 verse 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end its way is death. There is a way that seems right. The blindness is there. The narrow vision, the myopia, the the ability only to see a little sliver of reality and to be convinced that that is the right way. But as Proverbs says, as Solomon says, in the end, it's the path of death. Proverbs 26.12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him The same thing is repeated in Proverbs 28.26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. You see, a right attitude to correction. A right attitude towards this idea of receiving rebuke and admonition is based on a decidedly negative, a decidedly pessimistic, a decidedly suspicious view of self and the self's ability to observe reality correctly. Solomon says we need to cultivate this negative attitude, this negative attitude towards self, towards the great ego, the I. This is a reflection in the book of Proverbs of the foundational view of man, the doctrine of man that is pervasive in the book of Proverbs, it's a very pessimistic view. And for example, in Proverbs 22 verse 15, Solomon states that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. He's talking about the reality that depravity is present from the start of our existence. It is inherent to who we are. It's already intertwined in our hearts from conception. And then we have this proverb, Proverb 20, verse 9, 
which says, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? It's a rhetorical question. It's not one which is expecting contemplation. The answer is clear. Who can say this? No one. The depravity of man is pervasive. It is universal. No one can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sins. Or Proverbs 20 verse 30. Notice how the, 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 the sage here defines the heart of man. He says, stripes that wound scour away evil. And strokes reach the innermost parts. Solomon is making us aware that evil is this corrosiveness which is inherent to who we are. And the only way to to get at it, to get it out of life, is through stripes, through wounds. That is the state of our flesh. The man on the path to wisdom, therefore, must affirm God's assessment of himself, not just in the abstract. Yeah, Yep, I I realize I've got a problem with my flesh. No, he's got to affirm it personally, practically. And that realization that self is insufficient, that self is deficient, is going to make itself known through the practices in your life that show that you don't trust your own gut. That you look to an external authority. Charles Bridges, summarizing this point well, said this, and it speaks to the heart of men. He said this, A Leviathan iron-heartedness is the stubbornness of the flesh, not the triumph of the Spirit. A Leviathan iron-heartedness is the stubbornness of the flesh, not the triumph of the Spirit. If, if you will not come to a realization of this first truth, there's no way that you will ever accept correction in the way that you ought to. It begins here. It begins with the realization, I cannot trust myself. It begins with the recognition, I have blind spots. I need authorities outside of myself who will explain reality to me better than I myself can observe it. That's where it begins. Number two, as it relates to accepting correction, the second truth is this. The willingness to accept correction springs from a readiness to receive it from the Lord. The willingness to accept correction springs from a readiness to receive it from the Lord. On a practical level, this is is where it begins as well. It begins in this relationship to the Lord. You see, those who are resistant today to correction, if that's you or someone you know, if, if that person is resistant to correction, it, it exposes an implicit belief. If you are resistant to correction, it exposes an implicit belief that says this, I am so good that the Lord has nothing to change in me, so he certainly will not need to use you. That's what a resistance to correction demonstrates. This implicit belief that the Lord doesn't need to change me. I am good as I am. There's no need for me to change. 
my practice, my behavior, my attitude, my language. And so you certainly don't need to get involved. Conversely, those who do receive correction from others, those who welcome it and esteem it, and as hard as it is to to apply it, struggle to apply that correction in their lives, they too evidence this implicit belief. But it's a, a different kind of implicit belief. It is an implicit belief that says, I know I need correction. And I need it from the Lord most of all. And so he is going to use whatever he designs to bring that correction to me, whether it be through circumstances or through other people. The willingness to accept correction comes from this basic belief that I need it from the Lord most of all. Therefore, accepting correction begins with what we can call a readiness to accept and embrace the severe mercy of God. A readiness to accept the severe mercy of God. This is, this is illustrated in Proverbs 3 verses 11 to 12 where Solomon says to his son, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. As Bruce Waltke says, this is a severe mercy. This is a severe mercy. It is severe because we recognize that the Lord is so righteous and we are so deficient that he must deal with that deficiency. He must deal with the folly that is still remaining in our lives And he is incessant in working on that. He will not let us go. He will complete the work that he has planned. And so he will bring discipline. He will reveal. He will take the file and he will use it on us. And it will bring pain. It will feel like fire at times. It is severe. But it's also a mercy. It's a mercy because the Lord loves those whom He reproves. He delights in those whom He files and brings through the fire. He loves them. This is so important to realize and it is foundational to our our reception of, of, of correction because correction is never easy. It is painful. But if we really believe what Solomon said here in Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, we would realize that when that correction comes, ultimately from the hand of the Lord, it is not a sign of of some kind of disaster. It is a sign that God loves us. In fact, we could even go to this extent. If you are not being reproved, I can guarantee you this, it's not because you're perfect. If you're not being reproved, what does that say about your relationship to the Lord and His relationship to you? Think about that. We often say that the hard trials, the the difficult times, we know they come from the Lord's hands. And why is He doing this to me? Why? 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 And we want to find those answers to those painful questions that come with the trials. Well, we have an answer right here. Why? Because He loves you. 
He delights in you. And the sooner we recognize this, the sooner it is that we will open ourselves up and welcome the correction in our lives. This is not a, an isolated truth. It's something that Moses even taught the people of Israel. They wandered for 40 years. A whole generation passed away in the wilderness. Millions of skeletons left behind. And then a generation ready to now come into the promised land. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 8 verse 5, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. This of course is then repeated also in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 4 to 10. Let me read these verses. The writer of Hebrews drawing upon Proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12 writes this. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. I like what John Owen said, and remember this. He said three words, love precedes discipline. Love precedes discipline. If you can grasp that principle and incorporate it into your life, you will not only look on the trials of your circumstances in a much different light, but you will look on the correction that comes from other brothers in a totally different light. Love precedes discipline. One writer said this, the correction and advice that we hear are sent by our Heavenly Father. They are His corrections, rebukes, warnings, and scoldings. His reminders are meant to humble us. To weed out the pride and replace it with a heart and lifestyle of growing wisdom, understanding, goodness, and truth. We already sang it in one of the hymns this evening already. We know we're at the right place or on the right path when we can join together with the hymn writer and say, Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup I'm drinking May bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. Number three, the third truth from Proverbs about correction is this. The proof one is ready to accept correction is his transparency in confessing wrongdoing. This is not something that just remains internal, secret from others. If we are truly 
open to correction and have the right attitude and we're operating on the right foundation, not trusting in ourselves, recognizing that discipline comes from the Lord, he uses messengers and instruments, then we cannot keep silent. The proof that we are ready to accept correction is the transparency that comes in confession. Confession is the exact opposite of concealment. Notice this proverb, Proverb 28 verse 13. Proverbs 28 verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Again, you have this this proverb of contrasts. Two kinds of lives are contrasted. The one who conceals transgressions and the one who confesses and forsakes them. The one who conceals, who covers up, that one will experience failure. But the one who confesses, the one who opens himself up, the one who takes away the, the, the veil, the curtains, and lets others see in, that one who confesses will receive compassion. And that is so contrary to Human logic. Human logic says the best recipe for me in every situation, or certainly in most situations, is to cover up my mistake, is to cover up my sin, my iniquity. And if I do that, I'll be farther along in life. I'll have more friends, things will be easier. I just got to cover it up so that nobody knows. Well, the wisdom of Proverbs is the exact opposite. You do that and you will be doomed to failure. But if you confess, if you are accountable, transparent and open, you answer questions, you, 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 you answer honestly, then the Proverbs here is promising that person who does it in the right spirit, compassion. Compassion. We find this also in James chapter 5, verse 16, where the writer of James says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In that context in James 5, it's talking about the person who is sick. And the person who is sick is supposed to call upon the elders for prayer. It's in the preceding context there. And wrapped together with that is this confession. And the idea is, is that this sinning individual has been, in, has incurred upon himself the consequences of his sin, the discipline of the Lord, and it's resulted in, in physical illness. What's the solution? More concealment? Not at all. The opposite is the idea of confession. And when there's confession, There is compassion on the part of the elders in this context and more so in the part of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, It does not spoil your happiness to confess your sin. The unhappiness is in not making the confession. He says elsewhere, There is mercy for a sinner, but there is no mercy for the man who will not own himself as a sinner. You can be guaranteed of this. It's not that you come and you wallow in sin and get some kind of joy out of just talking about all the dirty details to others. That's not what is in view here. 
But when you come into the context of God's people, and you come with a humility that says, I own up to this. I need help. That in the true place where God is, you will be guaranteed compassion from God's people. But if you enter that context, and you try to give this aura that you don't need help, you are there to help others. That you don't need admonishment and correction, you are there to correct others. Not only do you bring strife into that body, but you yourself will be the recipient of it. Now when it comes to confession, how do we conceive of this? Let me give you six basic principles that are in your notes, so I won't go into explanation of these. I think they're straightforward. How do we confess? If we are to be open and receive counsel and correction, it means we must confess. What are elements of biblical confession? According to Heath Lambert, there's six of these. Number one, confess your sin to all who have been touched by your sin. That's rule of thumb number one. If your sin has touched somebody, you need to confess it to that person. Number two, do not confess your sin to those who are not touched by your sin. Don't go around and announce it, putting it on Facebook and declaring it to the world. That's not true confession. You aim your confession at those who have felt the collateral damage of your sin. Number three, confess your sin with a willingness to accept the consequences of your sin. You don't confess to get out of the consequences. You confess with the recognition that consequences may very well come and I am ready. I own them. Number four, consider confessing your sin with a third party who can help you with the response. Some of you may be in very difficult relationships and you've burned bridges and you've sinned grievously against others. Well, find someone, a neutral person, objective, another brother in the Lord who's mature, and say, come with me, I need your help. I need to confess to this person. I need to confess to my wife. I need to confess to the lady who has divorced me. I need to confess to my boss. I need to confess to my daughter. Come with me. I need help. That's what confession does. Number five, confess your sin thoroughly, but not necessarily exhaustively. You don't need to give all the details that encourage minds to wander. You don't need to air all the dirty laundry. You need to speak in in the categories that are helpful, but not necessarily exhaustive. And then finally, confess your sin without making any excuses. You know, and people will come and ask for help and in reconciliation or when they'll talk about strained relationships and trying to to, to confess, one thing that I can always tell is this, that the moment they bring in some kind of self-justification, the moment they bring in some kind of blame shifting, it's not sincere. It's not sincere. Let's just go home, pray about it more, come back, let's talk about it again. If you bring in this idea that there are excuses for why you did what you did, I want to ask for your forgiveness that I did this to you, but you fill in the blank. Or if you hadn't have done this to me, I wouldn't have sinned. That kind of logic, when that's apparent, that's not biblical confession. That's just trying to 
manipulate. No, biblical confession says, I will confess my sin and make no excuses. Number four. The fourth truth about correction is this. The willingness to accept correction is a fundamental step to future success. We've defined wisdom as successful living. The ability to live in a treacherous world in a way that is successful in the eyes of God. The ability to live successful outside the Garden of Eden, outside innocence. It's a cursed world. So how do we, how do we gain success in this cursed world in which we walk? And the answer is, the, the first clue really here is, is that it begins with this willingness to accept correction. And the more we accept correction in the beginning, the more success, biblically defined, we will experience in the future. Solomon here uses the law of cause and effect to emphasize the long-term benefit of accepting correction. And this particular truth is one of the most repeated truths in the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 3 verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days... And years of life and peace, they will add to you. Do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. If if you want to walk successfully in this world, it doesn't take rocket science. You don't need to know what kind of O-rings go in the space shuttle. It's something that is more fundamental than that. It is this openness and transparency to correction. And the book of Proverbs promises through this idea of cause and effect that the more you do that, the more you open yourself up to correction now, the more you will experience godly success in the future. It's a promise. It's a promise. And men, I implore you, learn this early in life. You young men who are here, learn this early. And boy, this truth will save you from many pains. But even if you're older, learn it today. Learn it now. It's not too late. This recognition, this principle, this truth, it separates the successful in life from the failures. You talk about those who who now are living a hard life Even perhaps they've turned and and the Lord has saved them and His grace is sufficient for that. But but they've lived such a hard life. There's so many things that, that are there in the past. You know, that's a combination, an accumulation of the consequences of not accepting correction at the very beginning. And those brothers, and they're in our midst, they can come and they can tell you the consequences of that failure. Learn this as soon as you can. And even if you have not and you've lived a long life, learn it and apply it now because the promise will still stand. You can still count on future success. Proverbs 6, verses 23 to 24. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. We're going to get into this in a few weeks as we talk about purity. But here is the 
key principle. If you listen to correction in the small areas where you have already failed and you listen to that, that correction will save you from the pit that comes with the adulteress. Learn from those early corrections. Proverbs 9 verse 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser, still more successful. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. Proverbs 10, 17, he is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. You can look at Proverbs 13, verse 14, Proverbs 13, 18, Proverbs 19, verse 20, over and over and over again. This reality of cause and effect is illustrated. The cause is that of accepting correction and the effect is that of success in life. Number five, the right attitude to correction expresses itself in a high esteem for those who give it. Now, the way of the fool is to respond to correction with immediate self-justification. And then, to, to build upon that, to follow up on that with long-term resentment against the person who has dared to admonish. That's the fool. I'm going to justify my decision, I'm going to justify my actions, and then I'm going to feel resentment against you for bringing it up. That's the way of the fool in Proverbs. But the way of the wise is to respond to correction with immediate humility and acceptance and then follow up on that with long-term esteem to the one courageous and loving enough to bring it to your attention. The key issue here in both cases is esteem. Esteem. In the case of the fool, there's esteem, but esteem is for self. It's self-esteem. And when you have this self-esteeming, you feel resentment against anyone who threatens your pride. It's about esteem aimed inwardly. But the humble one, the wise one, he has esteem as well, but it's not in self. He has esteem for the source of the admonishment, for the one courageous and bold enough to come and correct him. It's always about esteem. And in this moment, you have to ask yourself the question, when the next time comes, when a brother comes and corrects you, where is this esteem directed at? Am I protecting my own self-esteem? Or do I have an esteem for those bold enough to tell me where I went wrong? Proverbs 9, verses 7 to 8. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer. He will hate you. Reprove a wise man. And he will love you. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-three: He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. And that's speaking of a wise man. One person said this. No instruction can succeed if there is dislike. No instruction can succeed if there is dislike. Number six, the habitual acceptance of correction is clear evidence that one is on the path to wisdom. As I've said before, wisdom never remains hidden in a man. It always discloses its existence. And one of the ways where wisdom discloses its existence is through a man's lifestyle of teachability. 
He's wise because this is his pattern of life, of willingness to receive correction. You could look at Proverbs 12 verse 1, whoever loves discipline, whoever loves it, he loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. Proverbs 15, 14, the mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. Proverbs 15, 31, 32, he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself But he who listens to reproof acquires understanding over and over and over again. You find the the sage saying wisdom manifests itself in the readiness to receive correction. Number seven, the acceptance of correction in one's own life prepares him to give it appropriately to others. Those in the best place to give correction are those who have most learned from it. The best teachers are always the best learners. And so notice Proverbs twenty-two seventeen to 18. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you that they may be ready on your lips. You get that? Incline your ears, seek wisdom, seek correction, seek reproof. Be ready, be open. And you do that, and then that correction, that wisdom is going to be ready on your lips to administer to someone else. Proverbs 27 verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. Out of the mouth of one who is resistant to correction, will only come error. Folly is still intertwined with his existence. And so he will only speak that which is errant. Proverbs 10.32, The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. You know that. So it's very important that If we are to be good counselors, if we are to be good ministers of the word, admonishers to one another, it doesn't mean that we just make it our ambition just to go around telling other people what to do. Our first priority is always to be a good listener, to be a good receiver of admonition and rebuke. Finally, number eight, the refusal to receive correction results in emotional physical and spiritual calamity. Here's the other side of the law of cause and effect. If you resist correction, I want to make something very clear to you. I want to warn you so that you cannot walk out and say, I did not know. The book of Proverbs is very clear on this. Consider, for example, what wisdom says to the fool in Proverbs 1, verse 24 to 27. Because I called you and you refused... I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes on you like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Proverbs 13.13, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. 
Proverbs 13, verse 18, poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Proverbs 15, verse 32, he who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens acquires understanding. The list goes on and on and on. The way of the one who resists correction will be hard and will ultimately end in death. And so I want to ask this question as we close our time. I want to ask this question, do you accept correction? And maybe right now your life is very hard. And if it is, I want you to consider one of two possibilities. Perhaps your life is very hard right now because you have that iron-heartedness. That admonition and correction does not sink in. You rebuff over and over again. Some of you may be in that situation that your life is hard because someone has admonished you, a pastor, another brother, someone else in the body of the church has admonished you, you've resisted, and your life comes increasingly more difficult. Well, in that case, the challenge, the call to you is to soften your heart. It's to repent of that iron-heartedness. It is to ask the Lord for the heart of flesh. To ask for a heart that truly fears the Lord. A heart that truly leans upon Him. A heart that places His glory above your own pride. It's to cry out to the Lord to give you the fear that causes you to tremble and makes you receptive to the admonition of the truth. Or perhaps the second category is this. Your life is hard right now and you feel, you know, I, I'm open to counsel, but it, it seems that it just keeps getting harder. I'm asking for help. I, I'm listening, but the Lord keeps sending in one hardship after another hardship, after another one, and I don't know where this is going. But we're going to sing a hymn now that is going to be the answer to you. It's going to be the answer to show what the Lord is doing in your life. Even you who are under the burden of the Lord's correction, fully recipient to, receptive to it, and yet still feeling the pain. That correction is the Lord's most vivid demonstration in your life that He loves you. So let's sing this song. And as we do, I want you to think of the words. It's written by John Newton and it really expresses a testimony. We're going to sing along these words. We're going to sing along with John Newton as he himself was in this position of feeling the Lord's correction upon him, thinking that he was doing all he could and needed to do, and yet things just kept getting more difficult. Let's sing this song along with John Newton and see where it ends in the last verse. Pay attention to the Lord's words in the sixth and the seventh stanzas. Let's sing together. <laughs>